Again, glad y'all are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 5. So last week, Jesus, we saw Jesus in Jerusalem for an unnamed festival. We don't know what festival, but he's there. And rather than going to the temple, which is where we would think he would go uh, to worship, he goes to a pool uh, at Bethesda, and uh, it's a place called Bethesda. It's a pool, and all the people who are really sick gather there hoping for a miracle. They're hoping to be healed at this pool, and Jesus goes there, and he sees a guy who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years, and he goes up to him, and he says to this guy, get up, pick up your mat, and, and go home. He heals him instantly. Oh, that's great. And then we read that all of that happened on the Sabbath. It happened on a Saturday, which is a holy day. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest. That's fourth commandment. But the Bible doesn't exactly say what work is, and so with, I think, the best of intentions, the religious leaders over time had developed this list of activities that they said um, were forbidden. This is, they defined work. And they had these 39 categories of work, things you couldn't do. And one of the categories was carrying. You weren't allowed to carry something in public. And so this guy's carrying his mat. And some religious leaders see him and they say, hey, it's the Sabbath and you're carrying your mat. And he says, it, it, it's not my fault. The guy who healed me, he told me to pick it up and carry it. And they said, well, who was that? Who would tell you to break the Sabbath? And the guy says, I don't, I don't know his name. And then Jesus sees this man who he healed at the temple. And he says to him, he gives him this spiritual warning. He says, you, you need to stop sinning or something worse than not being able to walk is going to happen to you. There are worse things than not being able to walk for 38 years. And if you keep on sinning, that worse thing is going to happen to you. And the guy then... I don't know if you want to call it a betrayal. That may be too strong a word. He, he tattles on Jesus. He goes to the religious leaders and says, it was, it was Jesus. He was the guy that told me to pick up my mat, and the Pharisees are upset. Now, Jesus hasn't broken any laws. He, the Hebrew says he was like us in every way, tempted in every way like us, but he never sinned. So he, he didn't break any laws, but he did break in the, in the, any of God's laws, but he, he did break some rules that some rabbis had set up. God never said, don't pick up a mat. God never said, don't heal on the Sabbath. Jesus had done both of those things. He'd healed on the Sabbath, and he told someone to, break a mat, to pick up a mat. And So these guys are upset because he's violating what Jesus called the tradition of the elders. And so they're upset, and that's where we're going to pick up today. With the Pharisees and the religious leaders knowing it's Jesus who has broken the Sabbath rules in their mind, the Sabbath rules that they've created. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, that is healing people, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this very reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders is increasing. When we first see Jesus in Jerusalem, he cleanses the temple, and the religious leaders get upset, but they just, they just uh, challenge him. There's nothing physical. They just say, who gave, what, what gives you the right? Who gave you the authority to do this? And now we see, because he's a Sabbath breaker, they're persecuting him. So that's the idea of some, and we don't know exactly what that looks like, but it's an ongoing action. They have been persecuting him, and then in his defense... When they say, you're breaking the Sabbath, he says, well, my father is constantly working. 
up to this very day, and I, I'm working too. What they hear in that statement is Jesus saying, I'm equal with God. All Jewish people saw God as their father, but they hear something different in what Jesus is saying, and they're, on, they're right. Jesus is claiming to be equal with God, and they pick up on that, and that ratchets things up for them. It's one thing to break the Sabbath. It's another thing to consider yourself equal with God. That's blasphemy. And so now they try to kill Jesus. It seems like what's going on is the Jews believe that God was always working. He took off one day, Genesis 1. He worked for six days and he rested on the seventh day. But he doesn't take off one day every week. If he did, the world would fall apart. We call that the doctrine of providence. That God created everything and that God sustains everything. That every, everything, everything works because God is making it work all the time. And if he were to withdraw his hand, everything would fall apart. And so the idea is God's always at work, so he kind of gets a pass on the Sabbath. He doesn't have to rest because if he rests, we're all done. And Jesus says, well, me too. My father's always working, and I am too. And so they hear Jesus taking a, a prerogative that belongs to God alone. You're claiming equality with God. And so now what we're going to look at is Jesus explaining and defining his relationship with the Father. And it, to me, it's a bit confusing. It's dense, I think. And so we're going to give you a couple of handholds before we jump in. So Jesus is going to refer to himself as the Son and God as the Father. Jesus is going to use the, the, the concept of work to explain his relationship. That's where everything started with who gets to work on the Sabbath. So Jesus grabs onto that idea of work. And he uses work to explain his relationship with the Father. He does claim equality with God, but he also says he's dependent upon God. And that can be confusing as well. Well, which one is it? Is the Son equal to the Father or is the Son dependent upon the Father? And the answer is both. We know that to be Trinitarian language. We serve one God who exists in three persons, which we can't understand. It's a mystery. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son, but they all share one divine essence. There are no good analogies or pictures. A three-leaf clover is just as bad and just as good as all the rest of them. One clover, those three leaves, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The leaves are separate, but they all share one essence. Again, they all break down. Jesus is using that language, and that can get confusing for us as well. Is he saying he's equal with the Father, or is he saying he's less than? He's never less than, but he voluntarily submits to the Father as the Son, as a son would to a father. So we're going to try to get into this and hopefully not get lost in the weeds. We're going to look at, um, we're going to look at it up here on the screen. So I've replaced the pronouns. He says he all the time, and we don't know, sometimes it's hard to... Keep up with who he is. And so I've replaced the, a lot of the he's in blue uh, with who the, who the he is referring to. That was clear. Jesus gave them this answer. So this is his answer to the Pharisees when they say you're claiming to be equal with God. Very truly I tell you, the son, remember that's Jesus, can do nothing by himself. The son can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. 
For the Father loves the Son and shows the Son all he, that is, the Father does. Yes, and the Father will show the Son even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom the Son is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent the Son. So maybe it would be helpful if instead of thinking of Jesus and his heavenly Father, use as a parallel Jesus and his earthly Father. Think of Jesus and Joseph. Joseph was a carpenter. That's a skill, a trade, a craft. And Joseph would have taught Jesus that skill. Joseph would have taught Jesus how to be a carpenter. And the way he would have taught Jesus was by bringing Jesus into his workshop and letting him see what he did, and then letting him do it himself. He wouldn't have given him a book. He wouldn't have sent him to carpentry school. He would have taught him personally. So think of that idea when you're thinking of Jesus' work with his heavenly father. Think of that parallel between Jesus and an earthly father. An earthly father teaching his son how to do whatever it is that the earthly father does. Tie a fly to fly fish, swing a golf club, build a chair, rebuild an engine, whatever it is that the father does. Think of him teaching his son and how his son would learn from him. That's, that's the picture Jesus is drawing on to say, that's what my working relationship is with the father. When it comes to work, this is what we do. So the, the context of Jesus' work is what the Father does. So if you can th- draw a circle in your mind, and inside the circle put everything that God does, all of his work. Jesus says, I do all of that stuff. Everything that you just put in the circle, I do all of that, and I don't do anything that's not in the circle. Everything the Father does, I do. And I only do what the Father does. That's the context for Jesus' work. And he says, the basis for my work is that the Father loves me. The Father loves the Son. Again, think of an earthly father who has a kid, and he wants to pass on something that's important to him. A skill, a trade, a hobby. I want to give this to you because I love you. The Father loves the Son, and so he invites the Son into his work. The extent or the scope of that work. Jesus says, you're going to see greater things. That guy couldn't walk for 38 years, and now he can. You haven't seen anything yet. Just like the father gives life, so the son gives life also. In a few chapters, we're going to see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. It's a big deal to heal someone who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. It's a greater work. It's a bigger deal to call someone out of a grave who's been dead for four days. The son gives life to whom he wants. In that case, it was Lazarus. He wanted to give life to Lazarus. And he raises him from the dead. In addition to that work, Jesus says, I also, the son also is going to judge. The father has given the son the authority and the responsibility to judge. That's a bombshell for these Jewish men. The son doesn't just break, doesn't just work on the Sabbath in their mind breaking the Sabbath because the father does. The son doesn't just give life like the father does. The son also is going to judge the world. 
And Jesus says the reason the Father has given this responsibility to the Son is so that we all would honor him. To honor is to, to ascribe worth or value to something. Just as, so that is to the same degree that. So the Father entrusts judgment to the Son so that we will all ascribe value to the Son to the same degree that we ascribe value to the Father. If they weren't ready to kill Jesus before, they were ready to kill him now. Because he just said the same honor, the same worth, the same value that you place on God, he wants you, God wants you to place that same value on me. He's, a claim, he's claiming their equality with God. Again, he's, he's describing their relationship. He takes that idea of judgment and he expands it. He uses that. Here's one of the areas of, of, of work. Here's one of the things in that circle of what God does, judging, that I do also. And he explains judging in greater detail. Very truly, let's look at it up here. Yeah, better. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes the Father who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so the Father has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And the Father has given the Son authority to judge, because the Son of the Father is the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a guy from Daniel 7. Daniel has a vision, and in his vision he sees someone, quote, like a Son of Man. And that person is given uh, authority and sovereignty and power from God. So the Jews saw the Son of Man as, a, as the Messiah. So Jesus is saying... The Father has given the Son authority to judge because the Son of the Father is the Messiah. Don't be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear the Son's voice and come out. Those who have done what is good to live and those who have done what is evil to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself but the Father who sent me. So Jesus takes this idea of judgment and he's trying to explain, here's what it looks like for me to do what's in that circle. God judges and he's given the Son all the authority and all the responsibility to judge and here's what that's going to look like. And again, the, the, the backdrop for all of this is the, the religious leader saying he's claiming to, to be God. He's claiming to be equal with God. And what Jesus is saying is you're right, but it's not what you think. I'm equal with God, and I'm dependent upon God. I'm both of those things. You'll see some, a list up there. I won't go through all of that. Jesus is saying both of those things. I do all of the same things that God does. That makes me equal with him. God, the Father wants you to honor me to the same degree that you honor him. That makes me equal with him. If you want eternal life, you've got to respond to me just like you respond to the Father. That makes me equal to him. But I'm also dependent upon him. He's given me authority to judge. He's given me the right to have life in myself. I don't do anything that he's not already doing. I'm dependent upon him and I'm equal to him. 
We said that miracles in John are called signs, and signs point to some uh, aspect of Jesus' character. So if all we have is Jesus showing up at a pool and going up to this guy and healing him, who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years, and that guy's pretty crusty. He doesn't even say thank you after Jesus heals him. He doesn't seem like the most likely candidate in terms of his attitude. We would say Jesus is compassionate. Look at the mercy and the grace that he shows even this guy who would sell him out just hours after being healed. It's the first time in John that we see Jesus approaching someone to heal them. We've seen Jesus heal people, but they've come to him. We've seen Jesus work another miracle, turn water into wine, but someone came and asked him to do that. This time Jesus takes all the initiative. So we would say we see compassion in Jesus. But the fact that Jesus did that on the Sabbath reveals something else about him, that he thinks he's God. He is claiming equality with God. He was doing something that only God gets to do, which is work on the Sabbath. And the way Jesus understands his relationship to his Father is one of equality and dependence. I'm equal with God. I've voluntarily submitted to my Father as the Son. That's a massive statement that, we'll, that John unpacks over the rest of the book. And so we'll look at that as we get into the rest of John. For us this morning, a couple of things I want you to think about uh, and maybe make some adjustments as we move forward. Because this idea of Jesus as the Son of God, he's, he is God and he's dependent upon the Father. He's equal with the Father and dependent upon the Father. To me, that makes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John super important. All of the Bible is inspired by God. All of the Bible is helpful for us in terms of our own growth. All of the Bible reveals God's character. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are better in a sense. It's a record of God walking among us. If you want to know what God is like, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you want to know what would, what would God do, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what he does. Again, all of the Bible is equally inspired by God, and it's all helpful. It's all profitable, Paul says in 2 Timothy. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give us a record of God walking on the earth. And there's something about those four books that is special. And I would encourage you, we've got two months left in the year, read them. You don't have to read John. We'll do that together. Read, some, read the others. You've got two months. It's plenty of time read them. If you are a regular Bible reader, I would say don't go long without reading the Gospels. I try never to go more than about a month. All of the Bibles, again, is super helpful. I'm not putting any of the rest of it down. Maybe not Leviticus, but the rest of it's really good. <laughs> and I would encourage you spend time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why? Because according to Hebrews, Jesus is the exact representation of God. Jesus is the clearest and the fullest revelation of the character and nature of God. Again, if you want to know how God acts, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For some of you, that's difficult. The Bible seems remote. It's distant. You have a hard time connecting. It's lifeless and dead. I would encourage you to first find a Bible that you can read. If you're reading the King James Bible, stop. It's not, you don't talk like that. 
I have talked to every one of you and none of you speak that way. So don't read, the, don't read that Bible. Read one that sounds like you and there's plenty of translations that do. One that you can understand, that uses language that you're familiar with. There are Bibles that have all kinds of notes. They can help you with history and with theology. If you need that, get it. There's tons of tools online that can help. If you're not a reader, listen to it. BibleGateway.com. You can listen to a thousand different versions. There's an app. I can't remember what it's called. What's that app called? That's it. Bible app. It's a great name. (laughs) Download it. You can do the same thing. They've got plans, tools. You can listen or you can read. But I would encourage you, don't go long without spending time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's very difficult, I think, to grow in your understanding of who God is without spending time in those Gospels. And then the rest of the Bible makes more sense when you read it through the grid and through the lens of who Jesus is. It makes those other parts make a lot more sense when you read it through the lens of Jesus. Jesus makes this interesting uh, connection with the Father when it comes to work. The image there, again, is one of apprenticing. And I know it sounds weird to say Jesus apprenticed to the Father. He's God, but we can put it in quotes. That's the word, that, that's the picture that Jesus is painting. And Paul uses similar language in 1 Corinthians when he's writing to the church. And in 1 Corinthians 11, I think he, I like that, that time the best. He says it several times, but in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Follow my example to the same degree that I'm following the example of Jesus. And I think about that for me, and there's a bit of a conviction point there. Can I with integrity tell somebody else, hey, follow me, because as you're following me, you're actually be following Jesus because I'm following Jesus. To what degree is that statement true of me? And in what de- to what degree is that statement true of you? If people are looking at you as someone who has identified as a Christian, as someone who is following Jesus, if they were to imitate you, would they be following Jesus as well? Don't hear that as guilt. It's just a question. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. We don't get to see him with our eyes. People you go to school with and work with and live with, they don't get to see Jesus with their eyes. They do get to see you. And if you've identified yourself as someone who's following him, could you say with integrity to someone who's looking at you, hey, you imitate me because when you imitate me, you're actually imitating him. You can't see him, but you can see me. And I'm embodying what he would do. None of us, nobody's perfect, and we're not going to get there. But just as, to the degree that, to what degree is that statement true of you? What areas of your life would you say, absolutely, with no arrogance in all humility, I can say, yes, if you, if you follow me in this area, I'm following Jesus, I, I, you're okay. When it comes to how I treat my parents, or when it comes to how I treat my kids, or when it comes to how I treat my spouse, or when it comes to how I... Uh, express compassion and when it comes to how I forgive when it when it comes to how I spend my money is there an area where you can say with integrity yes if you follow me in this area you're actually following him because I am the answer is yes in some areas you are are there areas where you're not the answer is yes what does it look like to grow that 
just as, to grow that to the degree that. The longer we, we spend with him, that to the degree that should be increasing. There should be more areas of our life that look more like Jesus. That's why it's important to spend time in the Gospels. This isn't uh, mimicry. Your life is not the same as Jesus' life. You have more wealth now, no matter at 17 years old, than Jesus ever had in his whole life. You have a house. He didn't have one. You have jobs. He didn't have one. You're going to school. He didn't go to school. He never got married. He didn't have kids. There's so many places where our lives don't match up. He lived under an oppressive pagan empire. We live in a democracy where we have a say-so in how things go with the, the, the freedom to practice our faith. So that, again, that for some of us, that's like, well, then why am I reading the Gospels? That's not where I live. You're not trying to mimic, but you are trying to follow so as I'm reading, I'm saying, Holy Spirit, show me. What does this look like to, to internalize this and to live this out in my life? Jesus said to turn the other cheek. What does that mean when nobody's physically hitting me? Holy Spirit, can you show me what that looks like? And then you can show someone else as you're choosing to lay down your own rights. You can show somebody else what that looks like in a relationship. It's internalizing the truths of who Jesus is allowing the Holy Spirit to conform you more into his image. So you begin to think like him. And you begin to react to situations like him. And you begin to make choices like him. If he was living your life, he would be doing X and you're doing X because you've been conformed into his image. That's what it means to follow him. Again, it's not this strict kind of mimicking that doesn't work because your life and his life are separated by 2,000 years in, uh, of culture and 2,000 years of advancement in so many ways, they're, they're different. But we can still follow him as we spend time getting to know him and ask the Holy Spirit to plant within us the truths of how he would behave if he were living our life. The Holy Spirit will lead you into that. And then you, hopefully, with a growing sense of confidence, you can say to somebody else with all humility, hey, I know you can't see Jesus, but you follow me in this area because I'm following him, and so then you're going to be following him also. We're going to close with communion. The way we take communion here at Stonebridge, you'll come forward a row at a time, and you'll break off a piece of bread, and you'll dip it in the juice. And this is gluten-free communion here on the end, so you can take that if you need it. Uh, during communion, we always pray for people who are uh, physically sick or hurting. So... If that's you, we'll have ministry teams up in the corners, and we would love to pray with you about any physical condition that you have. Uh, as we move into communion, I was thinking about that last section that we looked at, verses like 28 and 29, where Jesus is talking about his role as a judge. And he says, at the end of time, the Son is going to call out, and everyone who hears his voice is going to rise from the dead. And the, the ones who have done good are going to rise to life. And the ones who've done wicked things are going to rise to be condemned. And when we hear that, we think, well, I thought we were saved by grace through faith. And that sounds like we're going to be judged based on our behavior. Which one of those things is true? John, it, it's a picture to me. I think Revelation 20 is a, a more detailed picture of what Jesus is talking about. They're talking about the same thing. Just in Revelation 20, we get a, a more detail. This was also John writing this. 
I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead are judged according to what they've done as recorded in the book. So that's what Jesus said. All the dead are going to be raised to life when they hear my voice. So that's at the end of time when Jesus returns. The ones who have done good are going to be, ju are going to be given life. And the ones who have done wicked are going to be sentenced to death. They're going to be condemned based on what they've done. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead in them. And each person was judged according to what they'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So think about it like this. So there's, every one of us has a book in heaven. There's a David book, and there's a Hayden book, and there's a Holly book, and everyone, there's a Jack book. Everyone has a book. And in my mind, I don't know what you think, in my mind, it's like a ledger. And on part of the book, on the left-hand side of the page, it's acts of wickedness. Is everything I've ever done that was evil. Not just things that I did that were bad, but things that you thought were good, but I did because I was selfish. Or things that you thought were great, but I did out of arrogance. Because God can see my heart. So all of that's on the left side of the book. All of my wicked acts. Wicked acts and good acts that were motivated by wicked desires. Which then makes them wicked as well. And then on the right side are all of my acts of righteousness. Everything I've done in faith or in love. The good things. And there's a book for every one of us. And all 120 billion people who've ever lived are going to stand before the throne of God. And he's going to open Hayden's book. And he's going to open my book. And he's going to open Holly's book. And he's going to open Jack's book. And he's going to look at everything that's in there. And he's going to judge us based on what we got written down in those books. He's going to look at all those acts of wickedness. And he's going to look at all those acts of righteousness. Muslims believe if you've got more acts of righteousness than wickedness, then you go to paradise. And if you have more acts of wickedness than acts of righteousness, then you go to hell. It's not what we believe. What the Bible says is the wages of sin is death. And so if you've got one thing written on the acts of wickedness side, you're done. You've got to pay for that with your life because the wages of sin is death. You don't even get to the second entry. I don't know, even if, if I was a Muslim, I don't know how I would balance that out. I can't keep up with it. Thankfully, as Christians, we believe there's another book. There's not just the book of Hayden and the book of David and the book of Holly and the book of Jack. There's also the book of life. And if your name's written in that book, I think Jesus reads that book first. And I think everybody whose name is written in that book, then when... He opens up the book of Hayden and the book of David and the book of Holly and the book of Jack because each one of us have placed our faith and our trust in Jesus. When he opens our books under acts of righteousness, there won't be or acts of wickedness, there won't be anything there. Isaiah says that God blots our transgressions out. This juice represents the blood of Jesus that blots out all of those acts of wickedness that are listed in my book. Not because I didn't commit them. I totally did. But because Jesus paid the penalty for them. So they've already been judged. 
So when God looks at my book, or Hayden's book, or Holly's book, or Jack's book, all he's going to see are acts of righteousness. Not because we're perfect, because we're not. But because all of the wicked things any of us have done have already been forgiven. They've already, Jesus paid the penalty. He was judged for my transgressions. And my transgressions have now been blotted out from my book. They were all written in his book. And God can still look at my acts of righteousness, things that I do in faith and in love, and I'll get rewarded for those, and so will Hayden, and so will Jack, and so will Holly. And I don't know what those rewards are, but they're real, and God will reward us for the good things that we've done. But you don't have to be punished for the wicked things that you've done. And if you come, as you come forward and take communion, I either want you to do it with a thankful heart because your name's been written in the book of life, not because you've never sinned, but because you've recognized that you're a sinner and you've asked Jesus to forgive you. If you're not in that spot, and I would encourage you as you maybe think about coming forward for communion to do it as an expression of faith, saying, I want my name written in the book of life. I don't want to be judged based on the wicked things that I've done and the wicked things that I've thought and the things that outwardly look good but really were motivated out of arrogance and selfishness and pride. You can make a choice today to have your name written in the book of life. We'll pray for you if you're struggling with guilt and condemnation. We'll pray with you if you're physically sick and you desire for God to heal you. If you're thinking about that idea, what does it look like for, for me to be able to say to someone else as I imitate Jesus or I follow him, you can follow me, you can imitate me. Maybe you want to ask the Lord to help you, give you grace and strength in a particular area of your life where if you were honest, you would say, if somebody's following me in that area, they're, they're going to wind up in a ditch. If somebody's following me in that area, they're really just following me because I'm doing whatever I want. And that might be something that you would want to submit to the Lord this morning as well. I'm going to pray. If you're helping with ministry and communion, if you come forward, Bo and Kaylee are going to lead us in a brief time of worship to give us an opportunity to respond. Father, I pray that you would apply now by your Holy Spirit all of the benefits of Jesus' life and death and resurrection into the lives of every man and woman in this room. I pray that you would forgive each of us of all of our sins. I pray that you would heal each of us of all of our diseases and that you would rescue each of us from whatever pit we're in and that you would crown us each with love and compassion. In Jesus' name, amen.